No test is functional. The test test with the test test, okay? So if you want to know if somebody's going to tear their ACL when they go back to sport, the way you find that out is you let them go back to sport and see what happens, okay? That's how you test that. Now, everything else is an analog. Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum, where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance to join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory. And for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. This podcast can also be found on your favorite podcast platform, and if it allows you to rate the show, we'd appreciate you taking the time to do that so that we can get the information out to as many people as possible. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport, and my co-hosts, we have Jared Maynard, a clinical athlete provider and the clinical athlete continuing education director and a physiotherapist at Depth Physiotherapy in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. He is also a strength coach and a competitive powerlifter himself. And we have John Flagg, who is an athletic trainer and the powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong in White Plains, Maryland, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger. He is also a clinical athlete provider and the lead instructor of the Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification. And our special guest on this show is Eric Mara, who is a physical therapist in the Portland, Oregon area, the creator of the Science PT website, host of the PT Inquest podcast, and is extremely active with leadership roles within the American Academy of Sports Physical Therapy. This is part two of our interview with Eric on all things knee and science. If you haven't listened to part one yet, we highly recommend you do that. Otherwise, enjoy the show. Jared brought something up that I actually wanted to get into a little bit because we've talked about the importance of the ability to just offset external torques, you know, internally actually using your muscles to be able to buffer these forces. Well, what's the best way to get that? You know, what's the best way to train the quad in order to create, open up their affordances a little bit, you know, take the constraints, you know, widen that uh that ability, that movement solution pool, I guess, for lack of a better word. And leg extensions are something else that just swings back and forth. They're, they're mm-hmm. death to the knee. Uh, <laughs> you know, throw a BFR cup, cuff on your leg and oh my God, leg extensions are, are heaven. And that's a whole other discussion. But, you know, what <laughs> leg extension in particular, um, or just the, the conversation of open versus closed kinetic change. You know, how best is to train the quad? What are we actually talking about? So, uh, so a couple things there. First, you know, and, and again, when I teach this, I always I start with science application because I think this is a very important construct for people to understand this idea in scientific literature of efficacy versus effectiveness. And so when something when you're looking at efficacy, what you're asking is in a perfect ideal situation what happens so and if it if it's successful there then you can say that it is efficacious 
Now, uh, so you could say like a, a blood pressure medication. You take the blood pressure medication, it actually lowers blood pressure. It is efficacious. If I control for everything, does it actually do the thing I, I said it did, uh, that it's going to do? Yes, it does. Now, when you go to effectiveness, what you're asking is, now that I take this thing that is shown to be efficacious and I'm going to put it in the real world, does is does it actually succeed in the real world? So again, your blood pressure medication lowers blood pressure, but the goal of lowering somebody's blood pressure is not just arbitrarily to lower blood pressure, it's to prevent what they call all-cause mortality. You're trying to keep somebody from dying. And so you need to test that when you apply it in the real world, does it actually reduce you know uh, mortality? And, and in the case of like a blood pressure medication, if you lower people's blood pressure too far, they may have syncope and hit their head and, and they end up dying of, of a head injury. Um, so they still died, but at least they have better blood pressure. And so when we talk about the quadricep, when you lock somebody into a, 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 a quote unquote open kinetic chain, and I keep using quote unquote because I actually don't believe that that uh, open and closed kinetic chains are, are real constructs. They're they're. Uh, let's just say, ask a mechanical engineer what an open kinetic chain is and their brain will seize on you because it doesn't make any sense to them. Um, but uh, when you think about what you're doing is you're asking, you're putting the quadricep in a situation, say, okay, in a perfect world where nothing can help this, you know, in a total isolation, what can this quadricep do? Now, if it lacks that, then it can't be effective Okay, so if it lacks efficacy, so again, your blood pressure medication does nothing for blood pressure, it cannot be effective in the real world. And so the first thing you have to establish is, is the quadricep efficacious? So when put in a perfect isolated situation, can it generate the torque necessary? Then you can put it into a real world application to see if, is it using it in the real world application? Is it applying it there? And so that's where that leg extension gives you that isolation and allows it, and, and again, from a training perspective, it allows it to work with an isolated, large external knee flexion moment and build its capacities to handle that and its, you know, uh, ability to handle that as far as, you know, uh, fear, you know, when a large external knee flexion moment is coming into it, it's not going to run away from it because it has experience with it. Um it knows whether it's going to hurt or not uh, because it, it's been through that. And so that's, you know, that's really, really um, kind of super important there. And, you know, when we get into like whether it's safe to do an open kinetic chain activity, well, first off, yeah, it puts a lot of uh, stress to the patellofemoral joint, but so does decelerating. You know, so does uh, going downstairs. I mean, lots of things put a lot of force into the uh, – and so conditioning the patellofemoral joint to take a load, you know, open connect chain is a great way to do that. Um, does it put stress on the ACL? Yeah, you can look at the, you know, the mathematical modeling. You know, from 40 to zero degrees of flexion, there is a decent amount of stress uh, able to be put on the ACL – uh, specifically ACL graft, because that's what we would be caring about in, in, in those situations. Now, the question I always ask, though, is, okay, so what's generating this force? You know, the thing that's going to generate the force during an open kinetic chain activity, leg extension, is the quadricep. The weak-ass quadricep that they don't have any use of after ACL reconstruction, you're afraid that that's going to damage something. It's just not strong enough to damage something. Now, in a situation where you have like they've, they've done an allo graft or a contralateral graft or something like that, yeah, maybe. But then the other part of this is 
the quadricep doesn't generate its max force between 40 and zero degrees of knee flexion. It creates it down at like 60. So just put them down at 60 and train them there where there is no load of the ACL. You're asking the most, you're giving the quadricep its biggest opportunity to generate torque. That's, that's where you would train it and, and start focusing there. Um, the problem we see is if you start doing like a lot of squats, a lot of closed kinetic chain type activities, uh, you know, closed kinetic chain in a vertical fashion, again, to better define those terms, um, you're giving them every opportunity to find another strategy uh, to, to, to not use their quadricep. And again, that's where, you know, I, I've talked about Susan Sigward's work. We had her on the podcast talking about this, where they show if you keep harping on somebody to bear equal weight during a squat and they don't have a quadricep, you don't get them to learn how to use a quadricep. You get them how to learn how to manipulate those moment arms to make it look like they're using their quadricep. And last time I checked, that's not the goal of doing squats. I've seen some big squatters look like baby deer on an eccentric leg extension. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, there's there's no torque being generated through the entire system. And that's one of the things where we look at this and you do, you get people that say, oh, well, they can squat a ton, the quad's fine. Obviously, it's not because if we actually test it in isolation, it's shaking like a leaf. They can't maintain it. They start sweating like something terrible. And then if you if you think about how that would actually apply in a high stress field situation, um, it, it's just not it's not going to cut it. No. And, and, and from the biomechanics perspective, a squat is dealing with a perfectly vertical ground reaction force. Mm-hmm. When you are decelerating from a run, you are dealing with a horizontal ground reaction force. It has nothing to do with each other uh, as far as that's concerned. What does a leg extension uh, uh, deal with? A horizontal vector. Okay, it is a vector that is perpendicular to the tibia, not axially loading it. Okay, and so that's where when you're decelerating, you are dealing with a perpendicular vector. And so you have got to train that leg to handle that so they can squat all day long. You are not dealing with a horizontal vector in that situation. Somebody right now is screaming sheer force out loud. No, (laughs) (laughs) which is exactly the experience when you decelerate. Exactly. Which we we start talking about looking at training the actual forces that they're going to have to to absorb. I mean, you're going to have to to go through sheer force at some point. Well, this is you see people working on like terminal knee extension is like the end all be all. It's like. (laughs) Okay, last time I checked, nobody uses their quadricep at max max uh, intensity at you know ten degrees of knee flexion. Okay, think about when your quad is going to engage during a deceleration change of movement, and and lo and behold, it's around sixty degrees. Uh, it's definitely not in terminal extension. Mm. A lot of the pushback I get with, we'll call them isolation exercises or these single joint exercises, is that somebody will say, oh, well, in the same breath, you're championing the dynamical systems theory and yet you're also uh, recommending things like a leg extension and those things in a lot of people's minds seem mutually exclusive but they're not because what you're doing is you're simply don't think of it as leg extension think of it as constraints led training you are you are constraining degrees of freedom and you are directing the load exactly where you want it and that's yes queen (laughs) <laughs> well, I, it's funny that you pulled that you mentioned uh, Susan Sigward's paper because I I had that pulled up as you were talking, and because I know I remember the podcast episode and the title of that paper is "Compensatory Strategies That Reduce Knee Extensor Demand During a Bilateral Squat 
change from three to five months following ACL. But what got me about that paper is the fact that they observed the squats to be pretty symmetrical. It's hard to pick up the way that the body will shield stress away from an affected area. And if you're not testing it, which is another reason that if it's like what you say, the test test with the test test, if you're not constraining all the degrees of freedom, the confounding variables and looking at just what that knee extensor mechanism is doing, then you're not testing the knee extensor mechanism. A squat is not a knee extensor mechanism test. A squat is your ability to overcome a force in that particular pattern. I can think of squat is the ability to squat. Yeah. So I'm thinking of, and this is, at the highest levels, and I, it's an example, I was, I was consulting with uh, a professional sports team, their strength conditioning staff, and they had a player who was having a hard time post-ACL, and you start probing, and he was, his squat was super strong, his single leg squat was symmetrical, like they did like a split squat was their test, like a loaded split squat set of five or something like that, and it was symmetrical from side to side. And he was feeling really good, but as soon as he got back onto the field and started running and cutting, his knee blew up on him. And I said, okay, what was his quad index? And they said, well, the, like I said, the split squats were symmetrical. I said, no, like, a, do you have a dynamometer? Do you have isokinetic? You know, what? They said, no. It was, this was a strength conditioning coach I was talking to. He went back and asked the PT staff, and they said, no, we don't, we don't test in that position because it's not functional. And my mind exploded because of what I've learned from you over the years and then just the like the gap in the logic to make that connection well you know his knee blew up because now you're exposing him to exactly what you're saying these horizontal forces completely new forces at magnitudes more than he's being subjected to in the weight room and we see this all the time when 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 we're not testing yeah i mean no no test is functional Full stop. It's not supposed to no be. test is yeah. functional. The test test with the test test. Okay. So if you want to know if somebody's going to tear their ACL when they go back to sport, the way you find that out is you let them go back to sport and see what happens. Okay. That's how you test that. Now, everything else is an analog. All right. And so then we, so again, the point being, when you, when you have somebody do a squat, well, you, you're not testing knee strength. You're not testing, you're not testing back strength. You're not, te- you're not testing any of those things. What you are testing is the ability to squat. That is all you're testing. If you want to know what somebody's back can take, you put a load into their back in an isolated way. If you want to know what their quad can take, you, you put a load into it in an isolated way. The hip, the you know, whatever it is. That's why our dynamometer testing is, is so specific for that. Um, and this is where, you know, what these people, what these athletes actually need is not a single leg test. And that's what people get mixed up about when they talk about limb symmetry indices. Uh, that, that is testing the ability of one leg to perform a squat versus the other leg to perform a squat. But that's not what you need to test in this situation. You need to test their ability to take an external knee extension moment. And so you have to put an isolated knee extension moment in there that is measurable. And again, the way to do that is through some sort of, uh, you lock everything else down, you put the load at the distal tibia and you put flexion into the knee and you see how much it can resist. And that's, that's the specific test for that. Now, when we start talking about what's normal, well, honestly, there's such a bell curve there. We don't know. 
And so this is where for ACL in particular, we do a limb symmetry index where we look to say, okay, well, what's normal for the other side? Now, whether or not that other side is good is not the question we're asking. We're just asking, can it do whatever the other side can do? Now, if you're going to say, well, the other side's not a good reference point, it's probably not very good. Well, then it better damn well at least meet it. Okay. And so this is where, you know, my thing is, because, because I agree, I, I, I don't necessarily think that the uninvolved side is, is good enough, especially in, in you know, Liz Wellstone's work showed that that uninvolved side is going to get weaker during, uh, during the post-operative phases. And so what I always tell the athlete is I'm comparing your, your involved side ideally to a trained uninvolved side. And so we got to be training that uninvolved side very rigorously to get it to max out and it will plateau pretty quickly. That's kind of the cool thing about these, these isolated tests is that you'll see there's some fairly, you know, normal numbers. You'll see three Newton meters per kilogram is how much torque the quad should be able to generate uh, uh, three Newton meters per kilogram of body weight. And that's whether somebody's 90 years old or 15 years old. It's pretty standard for an isometric uh, um, uh, quad um, uh, torque to body weight ratio. You're like, well, wait a minute. So a high-level athlete, though, that's training, shouldn't that number be higher? It's like, no, no, no. There is a a pretty quick plateau there. The difference with a high-performance athlete would be in your squat, where they're actually – their ability to take – their quad, their hamstring, their glute, their low back, their 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 uh, calf musculature, all of that, bring it all together and make a sum larger than its parts. That's where performance comes, okay? And that's where, where you really get, you know, you'll see somebody make a huge jump. And, you, I mean, you've probably seen this with people you're training. You know, you can work quad and you'll see them, you know, I'm talking a healthy, normal person with with no history of injury. And you'll see their their quads will make a little bit of progress, but then they'll plateau a little bit. But then you'll look at their squat numbers and you'll be able to make big leaps there because that's more that bringing everything together uh, part of it. Um, but this is where, you know, in an injured athlete in particular, you have got to make sure that those individual components are restored before you allow that system to, to reorganize around some new strategies. I don't get a lot of post-op now. I usually get them when they're six months out and or even further out down the line just with my current model. But when I if when and if I do, if I get them early, I, us, I refer them out to a couple clinics, or I used to refer them out to a couple clinics who had an isokinetic dynamometer so we could get some proper testing. I wouldn't do that all that often, yeah. though. And when I finally got a dynamometer, we got a nice, a decent inline setup with a pretty solid system. It's pretty rigid. And so I can now do serial testing. And I was blown away at athletes at certain time periods of their rehab where I thought they were at a certain level where they just were not. And yeah. uh, it was just, a, it was just, it was a shot in the gut, really. But it was, it was a big time wake up call. And it wasn't then just that. It was like, wow. You know, how does this manifest in other ways as well? And it really just started getting me thinking of, of truly what are these forces that they're going to be subjected to and like truly what am I providing? What am I putting? What am I inputting into the system? Uh, it was a wake up call for sure. Yeah. And, and that's where, you know, when we look at dynamometer um, and, and again, comparing left to right is, is when you see how strong or how much force they can generate on their uninvolved side, you have to ask yourself, well, 
why can they generate that much force on that side? Well, because that's the world they live in. That's the loads that their knee is exposed to on a normal day-to-day basis, okay? And so you have got to make sure that you get that involved side to meet that. And the problem is because people will say, oh, well, so then day-to-day normal activities should build that quad back up. If they don't have the quad and they try to go back to those activities, they are going to learn new strategies to get that to to get that um, to get that function. And so what they will learn is, oh, you know what? On that side, I don't need the quad. And so then it just never really restores. And there's there there are definitely people that kind of self restore. I don't want to you know act like that's not a possibility, but there's a large subset, and the ones that are really having the problems are the ones that are not uh, restoring. Kind of on their own, and those are the ones that really need. And again, I, I like to highlight this too. I don't know that it's just pure. I don't know that it's just that the quad is weak. I think that the knee is dysfunctional, and the, and the quad is a symptom of a dysfunctional knee. So, can the patellofemoral joint take the load? Are they still having some issues with the joint surfaces? It did go through a fairly uh, fairly in, uh, involved surgery that may take a good amount of time for it just to recover. And so, what you're doing is just systematically loading it to what it can tolerate and trying to push the capacities of the patellofemoral joint, the joint itself, the patellar tendon, the quadricep muscle itself. You know, again, that's why I always stress with a you know a handheld dynamometer does not or any dynamometer it does not measure strength. It measures force. That's that's in the name. Dynamometer, it's a force meter. So you are measuring the ability of, of that system to generate force or to take force. But it's it can be very, very complicated. We talked you know before about they could just be fearful of taking force. They may have all the quad capacity necessary, you know, from a um, you know, just from the, the muscle itself's ability to generate, but you're actually testing that muscle's ability to generate through the patellofemoral joint and the patellar tendon. So you can't isolate the muscle without it going through those structures. And so this, this, you know, almost gets into like a metaphysical question of what is strength. <laughs> no, I, that was, I'm glad you did it because I wasn't going to bring it up because we're already like, you know, I don't want to keep you here forever, <laughs> but I had it on my list of questions. What is strength is literally what I typed because I just did a talk at CSM on blood flow restriction training, and actually it was taking the antithesis. It was a little, quote-unquote, it was like a pseudo-debate. I actually took the case of, for heavy loading. Um, but mm-hmm. within that, I was like, oh, okay, let me define some constructs here. Strength. And I thought, well, this is going to be easy. You know, Let me just make sure I get my ducks in a row. And, but no, it was not. And I went down this rabbit hole of, holy nope. shit, we can't, we don't define strength and it's strength is defined on how you test it. And, and all of these, you know, all of these different constructs. So do you like the term is for you? Is it more of just, just general lexicon that people can wrap their minds around and then you try to bring the nuance into it or does strength actually have a specific definition in your mind that's separate from others? I, I think strength is too, poorly defined and too loaded of a term. I don't like to use it um, because as you say, if somebody says strength or strong, I immediately have to ask, well, what do you mean by that? Do you mean, you know, power? Do you mean rate? Cause actually power and rate are two different things. Do you mean peak torque, peak force? Do you mean impulse? Do you mean, and so there's all these questions, but you know, all those things that I'm stating can be measured directly. 
And so it's really a matter of, okay, well, what is the measurement that you're trying to change? Uh, but the word strength itself, so I don't like using, like I said, I, I like to use, you know, force production, tolerance of load. Um, I don't like to say strengthening. I like to say conditioning because I don't know what I am, you know, because strengthening kind of suggests muscle. And when I'm conditioning, I could be conditioning the patellofemoral joint. Now you could say you're strengthening the patellofemoral joint, but that starts to kind of sound nonsensical. And so that's where I like to think of, I'm exposing somebody to a load and I'm asking the organism to become conditioned to that load, whether it's the muscle, a joint surface, uh, you know, tendon, ligaments, you know, all the things, the, the, the heart as a pump, you got to condition it to take to handle its loads, um, you know. Again, the the word strengthening to me is just it's too loaded. And the problem I have is um, when I hear somebody say the word strength, I just don't know what they mean. And and it's you have to then you, you kind of get pedantic. Not that I've been called that before, uh, <laughs> where you say, okay, well, what exactly do you mean by strength? I'm like, well, you know what I mean, strength. It's like. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't know what you mean. And and honestly, if somebody is saying, you know what I mean, strength is strength, I quickly realize that they don't know what they mean. You've just melted my brain thoroughly. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> hey, guys. Quinn Hennick here. We hope you're enjoying part two of our interview with Eric Mara. If you didn't know... Eric has multiple online courses right now on his website, The Science PT. One of those is called Applying Science to Practice, and two others are called Complex Understanding for Simple Solutions of the Hip and Knee, or you can just do the knee, or you can just do the hip. I can personally vouch for any information that Eric puts out, but these courses in particular are phenomenal. I've taken them, and I've learned so much. You can find the link in the show notes. Also, go and subscribe to Eric's podcast, PT Inquest, now, like right now. Pause this one, subscribe to PT Inquest, then come back here. Speaking of free, we have a seven-part adaptable business roundtable series for free on the Clinical Athlete website. That's www.clinicalathlete.com. Along with that, our bi-weekly journal clubs have been absolutely popping lately, or fire, or lit, as the kids say. Those are free to join as well, so just keep tabs on our social media for announcements. But you might want to dive even deeper into the realms of athlete health and performance. You might want an entire community of like-minded people to discuss ideas, ask questions, learn from. You might want more online courses and webinars. You probably want some opportunity for one-on-one -on -one mentorship and small group discussion. Maybe you even want a place that provides a great filter for internship and job opportunities. Yeah, you're right. That would be pretty sweet. Oh, wait, that thing exists. It's called the Clinical Athlete Forum. For the price of about two cups of your favorite overpriced coffee, you can have all of that. All right, I'm done yelling. Back to the show. We do isometric mid-thigh pulls. I'll do them with my patients with low back pain. We'll just come in and do isometric mid-thigh pulls for, for sure. a myriad of reasons. Some to just like, hey, you can do with you can do you can kind of do something that's like hard if they're scared of loading. You know, it's an isometric and it it's kind of cool. You know, they're pulling on it. But 
we we could measure two like different things. You could measure time to symptom onset or uh, uh, force output at symptom onset. So at what point do they begin to feel their symptoms? And you could take them beyond that and just say peak force. And that's the that's the amount of force that they can tolerate. And that might not even be their peak their true peak force. You know, maybe they popped like four Advil or whatever or you know put some rock music on or heavy metal in Jared's case and then they just didn't feel their pain yeah, for yeah. like a couple minutes. Now they're now their peak force is actually at their uh, physiological limits. And so that's three separate constructs of, str- of strength right there. So I really just think it comes down to what you said is just defining what you mean. You can mean whatever you want it to mean, but it has to be something more than just strength or else we can't really have a conversation. Well, I, I like that you brought up isometric mid-thigh pull because I, that is that is such a wonderful test and a great example of you can look at a bunch of people with all the same uh, torque to body weight ratio for quad but then depending on their sport and their age group and their activity level and all these things, you'll see vastly different isometric mid-thigh pull because isometric mid-thigh pull is a test of a lot of things kind of all mushed together. And how does it come together as a thing? So isometric mid-thigh pull is what we go to after somebody's quad index is looking really, really good. Mm. Then we go to isometric mid-thigh pull for that. But from a rehab application for the general population, I rarely use the isometric mid-thigh pull because it's not quote-unquote functional enough almost. So the test I use most commonly and the one I actually teach people is I lock the dynamometer down as close to the ground as I can get it and have them just squat down and then give me a pull on that. And so that is asking a different question. That is asking the question of how much weight can this person pick up from the ground, which is a different question than the isometric mid-thigh pull. And to me, this is where, you know, you have that back pain patient that's like, oh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm terrified to lift anything. Or it's like, you know what? I'm not going to ask you to lift anything. I'm going to, I'm going to anchor this thing on the ground. I want you to get down whatever position feels comfortable to you. And I want you to slowly start pulling harder and harder on that until you say, you know what? I think that's, uh, that's my limit. I don't feel safe going any higher than that. Beautiful. Oh, look, you just pulled 80 pounds. So why don't I grab a, uh, or actually a lot of times I'll pull like 150 pounds. Well, let's go grab that 75 pound kettlebell and pick that up. Is that a deal? Yeah. I mean, I pulled 150 and felt safe with that. I feel, yeah, that's a deal. How many of those low back pain patients would have just walked up to the 75 pound kettlebell and felt safe before that? So literally within, within, you know, a, a 30 second test, I take somebody's and again, this is getting to the point of what am I treating? Am I treating strength? Am I treating force production? Am I treating tolerance? Am I treating fear? Well, I just treated fear. And so what is limiting this person is what I have to define what it is, find a way to measure it, and then find a way to change it. And that's, that's everything we do. The other side of that is, well, then how, how strong is strong enough? If strength or force production is like a good thing, well, is there some inflection point in which we've mitigated our risk or you will be healed if you pull that same person with back pain? Oh, if we add 100 pounds to your floor pull, you know, you'll be able to discharge and you'll be feeling great and you'll reach all your goals. But we know it's not that simple. And this, you know, I've heard you talk about strength. Being strong is not necessarily protective, but perhaps it's the process of taking part in something like a strength training program that has 
something to it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's what I was talking about before, where you're you're exposing them to working their muscles at a at a high capacity or, or close to their max effort. And so they have experience being out in those in those areas so that they feel they feel more uh, confident to be there and to to use that. So, again, you talk about an athlete who, um, you know, let's say that they have the physical capacity to pick up their body weight off the ground. Uh, and I use that as a basic reference of, of, of you know, picking up body weight. Um, now, when they go out on the field, if they don't actually practice this ever this, this working against their body weight, but they just have the strength there. Like it's, it, they just have some strength when they are in face with a situation, like colliding with another player, they may feel like hesitant. And then they, they kind of lose that battle. Now, if they have a lot of experience over in the weight room, picking up their body weight, even if they don't get any stronger, they just have more reps of working around their body weight. Now, when they collide collide with something on the field that's roughly their size, you know, another player, they're going to have experience with that. And that experience, I think, is extremely helpful. And that's why we see, you know, a, a protective effect of strength training, whether or not strength gains are achieved. Uh, I definitely think you should be aiming for strength gains because that means you're operating at a very high intensity. But I'm more concerned that they're operating at a high intensity uh, against max loads than that they're actually changing those numbers at all. To me, seeing those numbers change is evidence that I'm working at a high intensity, but that's not necessarily uh, the goal from that. And just so people the, the are, other way, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I, I could say too. You know, you were mentioning. You know, I'm going to make it that you can lift 100 pounds more. You know, to a back pain patient. What I always point out to a back pain patient is, or or any patient that their chief complaint is pain, because. Patients have this mindset. They come in and say, I want you to get rid of my pain. It's like, no, you don't. What you want me to do is make it that it takes a lot more force before you feel pain. But it will always be there if you get enough load into it. So when I increase somebody's capacity by 100 pounds, what I'm doing is making a larger window before they feel pain. And what we're trying to do is make that window big enough that they – all their day-to-day activities are well within their abilities. And that's really all we're trying to do. Um, you know, as, as I noted right at the beginning, you know, especially when we talk about like back pain or, or just specifically pain, it's a much more complicated thing that's rooted in fear and their environment uh, and all these other things. Um, and so again, you have to be getting, giving them tools to manipulate that uh, separately as well. But, but again, from a, from a load tolerance perspective, you know, if somebody's super fearful of load, they're going to pull on that dynamometer only like 40 pounds before they say, I, you know, I feel pain. Now, whether that pain is, is quote, real, I, I, I get flagged for saying that, um, but but I think people know what I mean, meaning whether that pain is is reasonable or something they should be perceiving, you know, we don't know. And so what we measure with a dynamometer, again, back to that original point, is not strength, but how much load they feel comfortable with. Now, I can change their perception of, you know, their fear, their confidence, all those other things, and then come back to it. And you may see that number double. I didn't make them stronger. I made them tolerate and more comfortable with load. And that's the thing I'm treating. And just to not to confuse people, you know, we're talking about now these more of abstract concepts and some of these more non-specific diagnoses, but 
when it's swinging back to the something specific like the ACL, there are thresholds that we want to see specifically when it comes to torque and, and, you know, torque to body weight and these types of things. So it's just kind of like the emphasis depends on what you're dealing with. Is, is that accurate? Yeah. So like, you know, when we talk torque to body weight on the, on like the quad, for example, you know, there's a bell curve there. I said three Newton meters per, per kilogram, but, but you look in the literature and you'll see when you look at the, you know, there's a, the study I always cite is, is one that looked at a geriatric population. So they're, they're from 60 to 90 years old and they're all hanging out around that three Newton meters per kilogram, but there are people down, you know, two or so. And then there are people that are like nine Newton meters mm. per, per kilogram of body weight, which is insane. Now, if I use an arbitrary cutoff of three Newtons per kilogram of body weight, there may be people that I'm not letting return. But the reality is normal for them is two, 2.5, and it's not fair to them. But I also may be letting people return at three when normal for them is nine. So that's why that that index is so important, and that's why having a trained reference point. And so what I say, so let's say I test somebody's good side, and it's only two newton meters per kilogram. I'm going to say, well, you know what, that seems a little low, but let's do some training, and we're going to work on these things. And then a month later, let's test it again. And if I find that that number is not really changing, that's just normal for them, and I'm going to leave that alone. But if I find that that's number that number is training changing, then I'm going to say, you know what, we got to work towards that a little bit more. Okay, we'll we'll wrap up here because I could just keep going. But I got real quick got a uh, <laughs> question from our one of our community members. His name is Aaron. He's actually a PT student at uh, University of Southern California. And, Yes. If you had to get rid of one of the muscles of the quads, which would it be? <laughs> if you were forced to just snip one of them and say all your athletes have to live without this one head. And if it's a stupid well, question, I, blame I, him. I'm just kidding, Aaron. I, what, I, what, I, what I would say is, uh, well, I wouldn't want to get rid of any of them because then I couldn't call it the quad anymore. Oh, Lord. <laughs> try. Would, yeah. You'd have to redo all of it. Yeah. <laughs> but what I, uh, what I can say is from experience, you know, a, a rectus femoris tear, um, you know, you don't have to repair that. You can get them pretty functional um, uh, and, and get just the same amount of quad output without the rectus femoris. But that's not to say I've seen a ton of any other quadriceps muscle tear that's the one that tends to tear that gets torn so i i guess uh that would be it but i mean come on aaron that's like asking which is your favorite child <laughs> oh you have one but you're not gonna say yeah okay. that's exactly right that's exactly right and then there was another question here that i won't i won't <laughs> this is from our friend cody but i'm not going to actually pose it just for the sake of being sensitive to the current situation, but we'll say it's a metaphysical rhetorical question. If what role do the quads play in the current uh, crisis that we're facing around the world? But we'll just kind of leave that for, quad strength of the, you know, for people to ponder. When I, when I moved to Oregon, I'm originally from Florida where it's very, very humid. And when I moved to Oregon, I started getting like these re weird ailments and I would go in to see the doctor and it'd be like, I have a sinus infection or something like that. And the, and the doctor would go, um, oh, well, this is, uh, you had a cold. And then because you're dehydrated, you get a, uh, you get a blockage and then that gets infected. I'm like, oh, crap. And then I'd have like a weird rash and I go to see the doctor and, and he'd go, oh, well, because you're dehydrated, 
your skin is reacting in this way. This is essentially a dry skin type thing. It's like, okay. So now every time I go to the doctor, I open up with, how is dehydration causing this problem? <laughs> Perfect. So, but honestly, if somebody comes in with a knee injury, I'm asking, how is the quadricep causing this problem? It's there the it VMO, and it's always the VMO. It's always the VMO. Always. That's right. Eric, where can people connect with you? Or if you don't want them to connect with you, where, th- where can they find your stuff? Yeah, because we're socially isolating right now is, uh, is, is social, social distancing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, do all, I also do emotional distancing. Um, uh, the easiest way is go to my website, thesciencept.com. Uh, you have to put thesciencept.com. Um, you can find me on – I'm fairly active on Twitter. It kind of comes and goes a little bit. Um, at Eric Mara, spell the name right, uh, and you'll find me. Um, uh, I'm on Instagram now, uh, but, uh, I'm an old man, so it doesn't work really well. Uh, I think it just looks sad when I'm on there, <laughs> but, uh, uh, I am on there somewhat. So you can, you can find me, uh, in that way, but the, the blog is probably the best, the best place to go, uh, for, for finding me. Awesome. And you've got blog posts on, on every topic that we've touched on today specifically. So I would encourage people and we'll put all that stuff in the show notes as well. And, and definitely check out the online courses that you've now put out of people, you know, if they have extra time on their hands now and, uh, I would just highly, highly recommend. So thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. No, thank you so much for having me. It was a, an honor to be with you guys. I, I love what you guys are doing. I think, I think you're really, really awesome. And, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to, to talk to your audience. Absolutely. No well, pleasure is ours. John, Jared, thanks as always. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. All Thanks right. for that, Eric. Appreciate that, man. Yeah, it's great having you all, man. It was really cool. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. We'd like to thank Eric Mayer for being on the show. Check out the show notes to find Eric's website and courses and go back and listen to parts one and two over and over again. And of course, thank you to my homies, Jared Madar and John Flagg for steering this ship alongside me. And thank you, the clinical athlete community, all six of you, for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic. And remember, if you want to dive even deeper into the clinical athlete community, you can check out all that the clinical athlete forum has to offer, which includes our clinical athlete academy courses, amazing discussions and networking with professional clinicians and coaches, as well as students, and just our overall hub of knowledge in regards to athlete health and performance. Thanks, everyone, and talk to you soon.